as we continue in this little series, uh, this is really, uh, it might feel like our first installment in the controversial church because last week was all set up. It was all this scaffolding of thought of why we might lean into something like controversy as a local church. And the idea is simply this, that we can choose to move toward controversy or away from it. And our thought here is that why don't we lean in? Why don't we attend to the things that generally feel uncomfortable? And in that place, we might actually see what are the facets or aspects of my life that need to be exposed to the discomfort so God might bring healing there or I might learn something I may have otherwise not known. And so we wanna lean into those things that generally have frustrated either our faith or the faith of others. And so as we move into these things, um, these are things that as a community, you brought forward and you said, hey, I, I, want, I want to learn about this. And so today we turn in to look at the idolatry of ideology. If uh, you fancy yourself a note taker, you could just put that at the top, the idolatry of ideology. And you see, um, to, to get us into that, let me just uh, give you a little brief history of my time here in Des Moines. Uh, our family moved here just under three years ago. And what I didn't know at the time, I actually don't know if you could know this apart from being a resident in the city, uh, is how deeply entrenched and yet uh, like simultaneously ambivalent Des Moinesites, is that right, or Des Moinesians, people who live in the city, how like deeply entrenched and ambivalent we are to politics. Here's what I mean. So you could have just been out to lunch and chat, like been like chatting with Bernie Sanders. And you come back and be like, yeah, it was Bernie, I guess. I mean, and I, this is like real time moments. We move here in November 2019 and people, like I'm seeing the, like the Biden bus over here. And I'm seeing all of these people I'm like, oh yeah, I saw so-and-so at lunch. But then, and it's like, it's no big deal. But then you start talking to them about politics and you realize, oh, you are deeply entrenched in the process because it's like a conversation turns in a, like something ablaze in their heart. And as soon as you start talking, it just this interaction. And I, I understand this is based on temperament and person and interest, but generally speaking, my conversations around these here parts were like that. Ambivalence on one hand and a deep interest in the other. And I don't think that I could have known that outside of, I don't know, doing intense research about Des Moines, but that's my experience moving into the city. You see, ours is a city with a deep political imprint. And this means that regardless of your political persuasion as a follower of Jesus, you would do well to know and reckon with how practicing the way of Jesus shapes your political imagination and the political imagination of this community. So if you can't tell today, when I say the idolatry of ideology, we're kind of talking about politics, but my intention is not to get into some talk here about uh, the polarization of politics. Maybe we can flirt with that another time. But when I think about Des Moines, I mean, Des Moines in the state of Iowa had over a thousand scheduled visits in the last caucus alone. That's more than any other city in the state. There is a deep political imprint here. And so with that in mind, I just, I want us as a community to reckon with this. And so I want to talk about two things, just two things today. How's it? Okay. The idolatry of ideology and practicing in the way of Jesus. There'll be some pit stops along the way, but those are the two things that are, that are scaffolding our thoughts. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. So Father, um, we indeed have these wandering hearts these hearts that can be enticed, and we have hearts that are resilient. Like, we're not just fragile creatures. We are people who have staying power, and yet, as has been prayed by somebody in this community, I need your power to trust you. Like, I actually need you to follow you. 
And so that's what I pray in our time here, that you, Father, would, through your personal presence in the Spirit, you would stand in my body, you would think with my mind, you would speak with my mouth, and so too for people in our community, that, that you would open them up to what you might have to say to them, not some quippy thing, but would your word open our hearts um, to the ways that we've given in to possibly thinking more of ourselves or more of a way of seeing the world than being with you and moving, moving toward love. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would move in this time and place, and that you would point us to Jesus as you promised you would. Amen. So I, I was really tempted to, to give us some sort of like short form uh, political history, religious political history, like talk about white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism because a number of you said you wanted to talk about that. Uh, instead, I'm going to give you a book recommendation because I realize that is like a lecture in and of itself. And I'm not a sociologist or historian, so um, I'm underqualified to give you that information. But the book rec is this. It is uh, The American Apocalypse by Matthew Avery Sutton. Um, the cover art is worth the purchase alone. Um, yeah, so there you have it. So this, this book is going to basically say how the uh, American church, through, specifically the American church, has wedded itself to certain forms of political ideology. And I think if you're a little nerdy, you're going to love it. If you're not and you kind of, kind of like history, try something else just because it can get down in the weeds, but I, I loved it. So instead of obscure history uh, about evangelicalism this morning, I, I want to tell you a story. Um, you know, since the time that we've been in Iowa, we've added someone to our family. His name's Silas. And that means that there's been a lot of change, sh sure. Uh, but what it's also meant is that in the past two years, we've had more visitors than I think we otherwise would have had. Like, um, Iowa doesn't have a strong draw for a lot of folks, uh, except in our family, since we're here, now we're the draw. And what that means is that uh, on my side of the family, who mostly live out west, there's really not a strong draw at all because they're like, oh, it's, it's cold and the weather is weird. It can be like 80 degrees and a violent windstorm and then the next week it's snowing. So I don't know. But Silas is the reason they've come. And so uh, on one visit, a family member, after kind of taking in the sights of um, the neighborhood that we live in, which is uh, just over like 31st and Ingersoll. Um, this family member says, I love your neighborhood. It's really pleasant, except uh, for all the BLM signs. So then a nice conversation ensues after that. But then there's another family member who comes to visit and meet Silas, and uh, we're going to pick up dinner one night from Malo, because ironically, they have really good mac and cheese that our oldest boy likes. So... Um, if you too are a fan of mac and cheese, then Malo, of all places, uh, is where you might choose to get it. So we're there, and this other family member and I, we go in, and we're waiting uh, at, at the bar to pick up our food, and this family member says, assures the bartender of their vaccination record and that they're wearing a mask. It's obvious that they're wearing a mask, but they let the bartender, this family member's a little quirky, so it's, it's like you can laugh. You're like, that's weird. It is weird. And so they, they share this, and... Um, what was interesting is both, to me, both of these family members are boomers, greatest generation. Both of these family members can give a pretty acute diagnosis of what they think is wrong with the world and also what will fix it. One is to conserve the way things used to be and one is to progress into something new. 
And so again, rather than giving a talk about uh, political ideology or like polarization, I want to focus on the common ground between my two family members, and that's ideology itself. And there's two basic features that mark out ideology. This is not comprehensive, uh, but if you're taking notes, the first is when you take a good thing and you make it ultimate. Uh, author David Coises, in this really helpful book, Political Visions and Illusions, he puts it this way, that every ideology is based on taking something out of creation's totality, raising it above that creation, and making the latter revolve around and serve the former, our servant. So take freedom out, or take politics, or trees, or gender, you name it, take any good thing and exalt it to the place of utmost significance, and you will in turn make a parody out of reality. And more, you'll then expect that thing that's been exalted to meet your greatest and deepest desires. You'll expect it to attend to your hardships, to release you from your enemies. And the second feature of ideology is when you take the part of a truth and you make it the whole. You take the part of a thing and you make it the whole thing. And curiously, these two features, when you take a created thing and you exalt it, and you take the part of a thing and you make it the whole thing. This is how a lot of Bible scholars would define idolatry. And, and though the ideologies that kind of dot the landscape of our day, whether it's liberalism or conservatism or socialism, whatever ism is of your choice, like all of them get something right about the world. And that might sound scary to you, but all of them get something right or else they wouldn't have so many followers. And they also all get something wrong. And to my mind, the, the thing that they miss the mark on is that they begin from the standpoint of human autonomy. There's this underlying assumption that we are these atomic, these individuals. And ideologies, they emphasize self-direction, this governing yourself according to a law that you choose. And this means that the isms of our day, they're not just ideologies, they're idolatries. They either take God out of the picture, or to my mind, what's even worse is that they just make God into an individual, something that you can choose or not choose to worship. And it's in this environment that God is no longer seen and understood as the Lord of creation, gracious and compassionate, really seen and taken on his own terms. Instead, God is just another option on an infinite ideological menu. I've heard it attributed to Augustine that idolatry, if you're looking for a little definition here, uh, that idolatry is anything that ought, is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything meant to be worshiped. So what if ideology is the idolatry of our day? And perhaps this sounds a little peculiar because if you're like me and you think about idolatry, then you think about it in its ancient forms. Like you think of people going to an altar and offering up a sacrifice or like a little totem pole or something like that. Well, those are only the manifestations of idolatry in their ancient context. Like idolatry is still alive and well in the modern world. It just has a little bit of a different flavor. And... The ideologies of our day, they're, they're not just like preferential ideas. They are these little pseudo-religions. And just get this, this comes from David Coises' work again. He talks about how each of these ideologies, they have their own priesthood. 
They have their own gospel message, their own good news that will deliver you from your hardships. They actually then have a definition of sin. What is the the thing that's ailing or hurting the world? And then they have a way to get out of that. And they, they make these promises to their converts that you will have a community and meaning and hope and purpose. You'll actually have an identity. In theological terms, each of these ideologies, they offer an eschatological hope. They offer a hope of the last things and what will put the world of the wrong things right. And in one sense, I just want to say that's beautiful. There are people who are thinking about the, 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 the troubles of the world and they're saying there ought to be a better way. It can be really easy for church folk, clergy like myself, to stand up and demonize and damn every ideology and then say it's allegiance to Jesus alone. And I do think that it is allegiance to Jesus. And we might miss something if we don't consider that everybody can be our teacher. The people you disagree with, the people that like your grandma hates, those people, maybe your grandma, um, like they can be your teacher if you're willing to humble yourself and learn from them and take on a posture of a learner. See, the challenge is that so often rather Rather than there being a humble posture to receive and learn and go, gosh, I could be wrong about that, some like, I don't know, intellectual humility, what happens is those ideologies, they entrench us. Like if you're on the left, I don't know, or if you're more progressive and you hear somebody, I don't know, talking about a way to conserve a certain system, my guess is, is that you are not tempted to then join up with that person. You're not like, my goodness, yeah, um, immigrate, I think I'm going to change my mind on immigration. That, I'd never heard that point before. Let's just flip-flop here, folks. No, what's likely to happen is that you're going to hear that thing. It makes you even more entrenched, and you go further to the other side. And in turn, you are not just against an idea. Then you're against the people who embody those ideas. See, though there is this hope, something that we would do well to see and learn from, that embedded in that hope is also this opposition to people who disagree with you. And if this feels a little technical and you're like, I didn't really come to church for this today, Kyle, um, just try this on. There's somebody who's way smarter than I think anybody in here. His name's Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian philosopher. I could be wrong. There could be like super geniuses in here and I just don't know it because I'm ignorant. Um, and you would do well to tell me and I could pastor you better in that regard. But listen to how Taylor unpacks this. He kind of brings this down to earth for us. He says this. American-style conservatives speak as advocates of traditional communities when they attack abortion on demand and pornography. But in their economic policies, they advocate an untamed form of capitalist enterprise, which more than anything else has helped to dissolve historical communities, has fostered atomism or individualism, which knows no frontiers or loyalties and is ready to close down a mining town or savage a forest habitat at the drop of a balance sheet. On the other side, we find supporters of an attentive, reverential stance to nature who would go to the wall to defend the forest habitat, demonstrating in favor of abortion on demand on the ground that a woman's body belongs exclusively to her. See, my point is not to excite what your position is on any of those things that Taylor talks about. My point is to demonstrate that identity, community, meaning, hope, and purpose can be driven by exalted half-truths. And in this sense, like, 
we would do well to pay attention to this. That's why we're, that's why we're here having this conversation. Well, more of a monologue, but hopefully this turns into a conversation. But this isn't something static from the past. This is trending. It is present to us. Uh, journalist Shadi Hamid in The Atlantic has this to say, as Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, and, and in context, um, Hamid is referencing the rise of the nuns, that category of people who are not religious at all, so they're nuns. So as Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation has risen. And, and this, is, this is interesting from a journalist's perspective. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that was, what was once religious belief has now been channeled into a political belief. This is what religion without religion looks like. And I appreciate Hamid's take, and in reading this, I, I really couldn't help think of my family members and the irony, or at least, I don't know if it's ironic or frustrating or a combination of the two, but with my family members, they're both professing Christians. Surprise, one of a more progressive variety and one of a more conservative variety, but nevertheless, both professing Christians, but both seem to place more hope in policy platforms than they do the presence of Jesus. And those are just two examples. It's a really small sample size, so I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make a general claim from their, that experience. I'm just curious if that might map onto someone or some situation you personally know or experience. I say, I, I do not think that the, that the great threat to faith is like atheism or secularism. There are threats within that, sure. But it seems as though this, as, and as the scriptures kind of bear witness to, the great threat is not God or no God, it is God plus something else. There's a little term for this. It's called syncretism. You know when you're trying to get your phone to sync up? You're trying to get it to link together. This is the term that has historically been used is when one thing syncs up with an existing thing. And, and like Christmas, syncretism. That's like a pagan practice to like put ornaments on trees and stuff. So you're like, hold on, you're ruining Christmas. But no, 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 it's just... You can take symbols and, and imbue new meaning and significance into them. Jesus himself does this in communion. He takes the Passover meal and he says, this thing that you've done to remember God delivering the people of, of, from a slavery into a new type of freedom, I'm giving this as a new symbol for a new freedom and a new exodus. So we can take existing symbols and put new meaning into them. But sometimes when things get synced up, um, what you plug into ends up like consuming the other thing. God plus something else can crowd God out till the point that God is no longer there. See, what's truly troubling, and maybe you felt this, is how many ideologies, they sync up with Christian imagery and language, language about freedom and human rights and dignity, and especially in our context, and this is like progressive and conservative. I, I, I think toward the conservative side of the, the Georgia gubernatorial, uh, the running for governor, that was a word I learned this week, gubernatorial. I thought, well, that's nice. Um, I just think of goober, uh, and I thought, well, that makes sense. So there, th this gal's running in, in Georgia, and her campaign slogan, maybe you already know this, was literally, Jesus, guns, babies. Okay. 
And this ideological sink, it goes both ways. It's not just people in a political space trying to tap into like the, the Christian language or symbols. It actually goes the other way as well. This is um, this excerpt from Ben Six Smith's article, The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. Uh, this is a bit of a longer quote, but I think the juice is worth the squeeze. So stay with me here. There is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. That's Six Smith's whole thing, a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. That's him making a joke, in case you didn't know it. We can see this quote with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Jerry Falwell was representative of the right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter thinks that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? And this is Sixsmith saying this. I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. When I first read that, I, like the term flabbergasted, <laughs> because it just fit. It fit my lived experience. It fit the, like, the stories from friends with a twist of Christianity. See, ideologies are not just something that are outside of the church. Again, this isn't just a time for uh, another pastor to rail on the things out there. No, the question that ought to come from this is, um, if ideologies are not just something out there, what does it mean then for us to practice the way of Jesus? So if there is a way that our imagination has been captivated by these ideas, then what would it look like to center ourselves in the way of Jesus? And to get at that, I want us to take a look back at our passage in Deuteronomy 4. You can flip or tap or it'll be up here on the screen. Um, but for a little bit of context, De Deuteronomy 4 is, is quite fascinating. You could read uh, the book of Deuteronomy in like one and a half times speed or like listen to it in like two and a half hours. But it is one speech. It's one day. And it is this long speech from Moses to the wilderness generation who for 40, 42 years have been out like learning to trust God over again as the one who is faithful to God's promises. And they're now like about to enter into the promised land. There is this reiteration of God's purposes and God's love for and with the people. And the call at the heart of this is to obedience. And so with that in mind, we pick up in verse 15, and this is what we read. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai. 
This is imagining the, the deliverance of the people from slavery in Egypt. So there they are, they're delivered, and then the fiery mountain God comes down. And I don't know if you remember the story, but it, it goes kind of like this. God descends on the mountain, calls out to them, and they're like, oh my gosh, God's speaking to us, and we're not dead. This is amazing. But Moses, it's pretty scary. Why don't you go up? We'll chill here. That's what's being told here. You saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. That is the command. Watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. And the passage goes on to highlight various types of images, whether, you know, birds, fish, different types of creatures. Even to the sun and the moon and the stars, the celestial beings, if you will. But then it comes to a close with these words in verse 20. But as for you, Yahweh took you, brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, and hear this, to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. So are the people of Israel the inheritance of God or are they not? Are they? Yes. And will they become the inheritance? Yes. It is the both and. God has brought them out to be who they are and become who they already are. And how? Obedience. Watch yourselves very carefully. See, one of the most helpful things and a thing I really enjoy doing when reading the Bible, consider this like a pro tip. Why? It's the most beautiful question. Why? Why tell this story? Why tell this story right now? Like, who, why? You'd be curious, like, it's interesting to know, if you come to the scriptures with curiosity, how the living God might meet you. It's, it's a blasty. Why? Why is this happening? Why are you telling this story? Why is this happening? Well, there's a good reason, because one of the first things that the Israelites did as a gathered community in the name of Yahweh, after they, like, sent Moses up, they're like, we can't handle this, but Moses, you got it. Moses is up there for a minute. They're like, he's probably dead. So then what happens is the Israelites manipulate their priest, Aaron, insert pastor, and they manipulate him, and they they essentially say, hey, um, we would like for you to fashion a god for us. And when Aaron is recounting this, he's like, I don't know what happened. The people came to me, they gave me their gold, and I like, this calf just popped out. I don't know, it was kind of wild. But what the text says is that they called this idol, this golden calf, which is reminiscent of their time in Egypt, they called it Yahweh, and they got up to worship in revelry. That's like uh, a really polite way of saying like Game of Thrones. Like they went and they got after it. That is the first thing that the people of Israel did, gathered in God's name. Watch yourselves carefully. Why tell this story? Because they are prone to forget. If you just go through the Torah, the first five books, and you look from Exodus to Deuteronomy, the people are constantly grumbling against God. Why did he deliver us? Do you remember the leeks? Do you remember the garlic back in, oh, the meat? Like this is the heart posture of the people longing for where they once were. So the call then for this generation as they enter into the promised land is to watch yourselves carefully because there was no form that came out of it. Instead, you manufactured one. It's like we have this propensity in our longing to like say, okay, this is going to be God. This is going to be the thing I worship. See, this has to be about more than fashioning a figurine 
So in addition to asking why, you might ask, well, what's going on here? And I think a helpful place, at least for me, to make sense of this is in the New Testament. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he has this to say in chapter 10. You can flip or tap your way on over there. Um, The Apostle Paul has now been in this regular correspondence with this new Jesus community. Uh, This community has a well, let's just say that a little, they're a little raunchy. Um, and so Paul is like, he has some intense dialogue with them and uh, an intense correspondence with them. But there's also these people who've risen up in the community who are perverting the way of Jesus. And in that correspondence, Paul arrives t- to this statement in chapter 10, picking up in verse one. This is what we read. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. That, that, that word for appeal is, is what um, a diplomat would say as they're going and they're trying to make a case to another person. I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am, quote, timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. Apparently, Paul's not a very impressive speaker, and so, uh, but he's apparently wicked smart and is, uh, comes, like, comes hard in the text. He says this, verse two, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, the human pattern to center ourselves in God's story is ever-present, from Exodus to Deuteronomy to right here to this present moment. We set ourselves in the center of the story because there's an element of control there, but in the language of the Bible, there's also this element of idolatry there. And though the exact words from Deuteronomy 4, they don't ring out in this passage, watch yourselves carefully, that kind of pastoral spirit to... to, is, is present here, and I think with great intensity. Watch yourselves carefully because there are some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. And this might sound like a pretty benign reason for Paul to challenge uh, this house church in Corinth, but listen to how Paul describes these people. This is a chapter later in chapter 11. This is uh, chapter 11, verse 13. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles for Christ. He'll go on to describe them as like co-laborers with the Satan, the adversary. So in keeping with the language of our teaching so far, it's, it's as though the ideologies of their day have synced up with the leaders in Corinth. And for this reason, Paul appeals to them. And notice, notice the intensity of the language. Focus in on verse three with me. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Uh, Paul's language of worldliness, it it taps into this kind of comprehensive system, this uh, ideas and values and practices that stand in opposition to the way of Jesus. Jesus himself talks about this world. He says, do not, like, He talks about overcoming the world, to take heart that he has come to overcome the world. What's Jesus talking about? What's Paul talking about? They're talking about these ideas and values and practices that stand in opposition to the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. The world is not the church's standard. And when churches fail 
to manifest their character as God's chosen people, as they fail to live into who they already are and are becoming, and instead conform to patterns of community life that are just like any other group, that is worldliness. That is what Paul is appealing against. The standards and mechanisms of the world, or weapons as Paul's put it, they're not fitting for the people of God. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So no matter your political persuasion in this season, as followers of Jesus, we are called to inhabit different patterns of community life. Notice I keep saying of community life. So often it's easy for us to think as individuals and like if I come up, even if I talk to the Bible and I say, thus saith the Lord, there's resistance. And you, like we have a pretty docile uh, congregation. So uh, there's not like, there's like one or two people who will say something. I don't know about that. But so often it comes from this personal place. If I had to come up and say my heart was stirred, was warmed by this passage, you'd be like, tell me more. What do you, t- tell me more. Did like the spirit visit you in that moment? Like, so we have this odd odd deference towards individualism, but these are letters written to communities. These are words given to the people of God, and so we would do well to hear them as such. And what's so curious is is when Paul is talking about this, he's talking about community practices. So so in other words, if if, if we're called into a different way of living, then we're called to resist the world. And in turn, in Jesus' name, we're to put away things like contempt, if you think about something as benign, benign is like, I don't know, cutting speech. Maybe cutting speech on the internet. Have you ever said like, I wish they had a dislike button for this? Well, in some instances they do. It's like on Spotify and you dislike that song. There's something really, I like that moment. I'm like, yeah, don't ever come back. And I think that if we could do that to people online, we would do the same again, but, but we can't, we block them. I have blocked numbers in my phone. Most of them I think are just uh, like, I don't know, trying to spam me. But this is something that's just woven in. And, and, and so we put away those things. We put away the contempt. We put away the trolling. We put away the cutting speech. And we move toward disagreeing well. It's really hard to cut down someone's character if you're having a conversation with them face to face. It's also really hard to have a conversation with somebody who you're challenged by their character face to face. It takes a different type of moral composition to come to that person. So the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. But hear this, there is a fight. See, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And here, not people, but the ideas themselves. The call to watch ourselves carefully remains because there are places in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies, like the fullness of who we are, that the enemy of our soul desires to establish a stronghold. And maybe you come from a church background where you're like, hold on, strongholds? And the enemy of our souls, you're like getting a little nervous right now. You feel a little angsty. You're going to talk about spiritual warfare or something? Kind of. Because we encounter it here in a passage like this. A a stronghold is a technical military term. It talks about a strategic position that gives you an advantage over your enemy. And by the way, strongholds are not something that just are established willy-nilly. It takes work to establish a stronghold. Often a stronghold will, will start as a foothold, a lie that you believe. 
a pattern of thought, an idea, a, a, a trauma that is unattended to, a sideways relationship. And if those things are left unexamined, that foothold can give space, a way for a fortress of the enemy to be formed, a stronghold. And just think, are, are, are there like lies that you believe regularly? You, you stop, I don't know, you get done with something and it's, I don't know, reviewed by a peer or you get something wrong, you're like, I'm not such an idiot. It might sound silly, but those things, like is that truly who you are? Or somebody else does something wrong that affects you and you cast that same dispersion over them. See, if left unattended to, these things can become a fortress, a stronghold. I just, if you would, do this little thought experiment with me. Think about the last time that you had an argument with somebody. Maybe that person is in this room or maybe they're not in this room for a good reason. But the, the last time that you had an argument with somebody when you were really going at it, how long did that argument stay about the thing? Like how long were you arguing about where the hand towels go or the parking spot? Probably not that long. Like soon enough, it went from, and this is a hypothetical scenario. It's like, um, I don't understand why we put this hand towel there into like, you are always making a mess. See, there's something about our pattern of thought and speech that if left unchecked, that type of vitriol can calcify into bitterness and that bitterness can give way to contempt. And those things, that is the scaffolding for a stronghold. You might go, well, that seems kind of silly. Yes, it is. Let me, let me just, um, this is not here. But if you were trying to, I don't know, like if, tear down a local church, for example, and how would you go about doing that? I don't know, maybe defame the leaders of the church. That's one way, and people enter into those things. That happens all the time, unfortunately. But my guess is, is if you could sow seeds of discord, seeds of division that arise along ways of thinking about the world, how people vote, what people should do with their bodies, etc., that is potent. That is potent to like push people against one another. And in that type of place, there's a fragility of trust and anything big happens. I mean, just speaking from the context of this local church, when COVID came, there was a fragility of trust. And when COVID, I don't know if you remember what happened back then. I don't like, this is two years ago now, so our memories are kind of struggling. But um, we had to make some decisions about how we would orient ourselves as a community in Des Moines. And, so, and the decisions that we made, they were not easy decisions. And what they did is it left some people feeling isolated. It left some people frustrated, not understanding. And a lot of us, we had no idea. And now we have you know, a, little bit of, a little bit of distance from there, a little bit more understanding. But still, it's like, I don't know. Like, was that the right thing? We hope it was then. Like, I would say 75% of our church left. over ideas and I, like do what you can to cope with that that like tears at the fabric of a community so right now you are in a place that there is fragile trust and doing a series called controversial church this may not be the most strategic thing to do in a church of fragile trust but I, what my hope is is that as we look toward these things we would see that it's not a place to demolish people our hope is that we would actually move with greater trust toward one another and toward God. 
And hear this, this is what we read in verse five. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take it captive. We take everything, every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And this is so fascinating. Just as we kind of close here, just um, arguments and pretensions are the strongholds in Paul's mind. And I'm borrowing on the work from uh, John Mark Comer and his work, Live No Lies, here. But um, first, arguments is this idea of logismos. This is this word in Greek. I think logic or idea. And these are thoughts or ideas in general. And second, this word uh, hoopsima or pretension. This is, which literally gets at the idea of like heightened or lofty things. You could translate hoopsima ideologies. These things, arguments and pretensions, or arguments and ideologies, they set themselves up against the knowledge of God, ideas and ideologies that are set up in opposition. And it's so easy, it is like I can readily objectify a person. I I can dismiss a person by making them into an object and vilify them. But what's so, and what's even more challenging is to slow down and to see them as a person to see them as somebody who is struggling or to like assume the best, give them the benefit of the doubt, consider their story. These are things that slow us down to see past the, the frustration or the idea. As Dallard Willard uh, says in The Renovation of the Heart, he says this, ideas and images are the primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. They determine how we take things and events of ordinary life. They control the meanings we assign to what we deal with, and they can even blind us to what lies plainly before us. We need divine power to tear down lofty ideas that take partial truths and exalt them as the whole, good things and make them ultimate things. And the antidote that Paul puts forward is not to tear down the system, though we need to tear down some systems. The antidote is not to take to the streets and protest, though taking to the streets and protest is and can be a good thing. Instead, the antidote that Paul puts forward, Paul's call is to take every thought captive and to make it obedient to Christ. How how many of you woke up this morning and you're like, Spirit of the living God, like move me toward obedience? Just get a hand up if that was your first thought. No, no one in this room. And yet there is the capacity, like what if, just, just imagine with me. These are the fun things that I get to do as, as, uh, as a pastor. Just imagine what it would look like if everybody in this community, if everybody showed up, this room would feel much more full. If everybody who calls Gateway home, if they said, you know what? Today the spirit is here, present to me to, to take every thought captive every pretension and argument that stands against the knowledge of God. I can take, make it obedient to Christ. I have divine power to tear down those strongholds. Spirit, like what are those things that are standing in opposition to you and you sit with that? Now, how do you want to, me to, to become a person of love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness? How do you want me to keep in step with you? If that was the thing that oriented our hearts, just imagine the type of formation that would flow through this community for the good of our neighbors. I think it would be amazing. And who knows how long that, something like that would take, a month, two years, a decade, I don't know. But in and through all of this, obedience is the call. And obedience is not really sexy. 
Like obedience is not hype church. This is not like something that's gonna, you're like, oh, what'd you learn? Somebody comes, how was your weekend? I was just learning what does it mean for me to be obedient to the Lord Jesus. Please don't say that to your coworkers, by the way. Um, There's a more tactful way to get into that conversation, but the call is not for progress. The call is not to conserve. The call is to obedience, obedience to Christ. And it extends, obedience often extends beyond like understanding to the place of trust. I love how Richard Foster puts this. He says, the aim of obedience is not external conformity, whether to doctrine or deed, but the reformation of the inner self, of the spiritual core, the place of thought and feeling of will and character. See, the burden, to my mind, on Yahweh's heart, and who am I to like perceive what is on God's heart, but it seems as though the burden of Yahweh to resist idolatry is not so that we could be a bunch of rule followers in keeping with the moral majority. This is where you say amen. Like that, is, that cannot be, if that's the end of following Jesus, I am out. I think there's something more. It's a call to watch ourselves, to resist the idolatry of ideologies because we are God's inheritance. We are that now and we will become that more by God's grace. The call to resist and watch is because there is something more. Did you, I don't know if you just heard that, church. You are God's inheritance. Each and every one of you. God looks upon you as his inheritance. Like the the God, the community of eternal love looks upon him like they are my inheritance. See, God's affections, they rest on us in Christ. God is jealous for us. And elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter will say this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, in Christ, we have an identity. In Christ, we can get a community. In Christ, there is meaning and hope and purpose can emerge, not centered on ourselves, but centered on Jesus and his way of love. See, this is not a progressive church. And you're like, duh, Kyle. This is also not a conservative church. And may it never be either, but may we strive to be a Jesus church that frustrates both paradigms in ourselves, because there's more to be had with Jesus. And I hope that we will be the first to, to name the, like, the compromise and the injustice and the hurt that takes place in the life of the church, and that we will do what we can to, to route out the sin of those things that are in this church that are in me and you, and that we will come with humility to be the people who doggedly hold on to Jesus as our person in place of healing. See, Jesus is not just one luminary among many. Jesus is the living Christ. He is the king whom God raised from the dead and set at his right hand to rule and reign. 
the one who will come to set all wrong things right, this is the one to whom we come. This is the one to whom we come and worship to ascribe worth. This is the one that we confess our sins. This is the one from whom we receive our assurance. This is the one who we're hopefully remembering here. Jesus is not just an idea. The kingdom of God is not just an idea. It is a life to be lived to the full, not just another thing to think about.